The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Elizabeth Miller. She's a psychotherapist certified in treating personality disorders, specializing in treating narcissistic personality disorder. She also works with individuals who are or have been in a relationship with someone with NPD. In addition, she has worked with numerous couples and families to navigate the complicated process of divorce, parenting plans and property division. Today, we'll focus on building healthy relationships after experiencing narcissistic abuse. We'll guide you through developing conflict resolution skills, cultivating honesty, and embracing differences with empathy. We'll also highlight warning signs of manipulation and dishonesty. Let's get started. Hi, Elizabeth Miller. It's so nice to have you here again and talk with you today. Thank you. It's good to be back. Great, great. And we have uh, many important questions today. So I want to get started with the first one right away. And we have, as a survivor of narcissistic abuse, I want to ensure that my relationships are built on healthy conflict resolution with each person able to express their needs and work towards a mutually beneficial solution. How can I work on building healthy conflict resolution skills in my relationships? I like this question a lot because it uh, focused on being mutual, uh, the word mutual. And uh, so I would answer it this way. I I always start out uh, when talking about uh, conflict resolution with my couples in my office, um, looking at their uh, compatibility in that area, quite frankly, um, really getting a sense of how do they approach conflict resolution and what were they modeled growing up? Uh, So, you know, sometimes we have an avoider and sometimes we have someone who's more uh, a confronter who likes to handle things in the moment. Okay. So I just, I want to start with, with that there saying that, hopefully couples have learned to talk about how do we approach conflict resolution? Here's where I start. I I, I say it's going back to kindergarten. Um, In kindergarten, what did we learn? We learned to take turns, right? And uh, so one of the things I teach in my office is the simple concept that like in kindergarten, taking turns, you have to take turns when trying to communicate with conflict, about conflict. Um, often what you'll find is someone will introduce an issue or a grievance and the other person then will put a grievance on top of their grievance, right? It's like, well, I'm upset with you about this. Well, you're upset with me about this. I'm upset with you about this, right? And that starts us off on the wrong, uh, on the wrong, uh, track. So in kindergarten, you had to take a turn. So whoever comes to the table first with a grievance or with a problem gets to go first. And that doesn't mean uh, the partner won't get to say what they have to say or share how 
it feels to them or feelings that come up for them. It just means they have to wait until they have been in a position to try and understand what their partner is telling them first. So you have the person that's introducing the problem and then you have the other person and their job is to be uh, a listener, listening to try and understand, uh, listening uh, with empathy if possible and, and recognizing whatever uh, possible things are coming up for them, whether they're feeling defensive, whatnot, okay? And managing those until um, until it's their turn to, to talk about what's happening for them. So we start with kindergarten, uh, which I think it's important to talk about healthy listening skills, which is active listening, reflecting back what you've heard, and uh, checking with your partner for accuracy. That's what the that's the partner who is in the listening position. In my office, I also have what I call my three no's. And this is just something I came up with uh, because I noticed themes and patterns with my couples. So first uh, is no trying to solve conflict after 11 o'clock p.m. Or whatever time is your bedtime, if you will. Um, Often I hear people saying, we're just getting ready to go to bed and one or the other will will introduce at that moment, right? And then they try to to work on it. They're tired, they're up half the night and it never goes well. So uh, if something happens late at night, uh, unless it is something that has to be dealt with, it's best if people say, okay, we're going to have to table this and, and address it tomorrow. And then you set a time to address it. Um, the second no is no trying to solve conflict. If there is any substances on board, you want to be at your full capacity uh, when you're trying to resolve conflict. Um, and lastly, uh, no continuing beyond an hour without a break. So, once we've been trying to work through something and it goes for an hour after that, uh, it's, it's really a, a diminished return what you're going to get back from, from that conversation. Usually now we're, we're, we're circling around things that have already been visited or we're into other things that have been brought into the conversation. So uh, I always say, you know, keep an eye on the time. And, and if it's going to be over an hour, or if you're getting up to an hour, then somebody needs to call a break. Um, and the other, the other two things that I, I would recommend, these are books that I like. Uh, the first one's by Rosalie. I don't know how to pronounce her name, P-U-I-M-A-N. And it's called The Mindful Guide to Con- Conflict Resolution. And I, I like this book a lot. And then uh, books by Nicole LaPera. Um, She's popular right now. She's the holistic uh, psychologist. You see her on all kinds of social media. And she's written the book, How to Do the Work and How to Meet Yourself. And there are also uh, workbooks that go with these. All three of these books are really about learning about yourself and understanding how you approach relationships, how you approach the world, how you approach conflict, learning to self-regulate. So 
I, I recommend this to my clients all the time. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for those book recommendations as well. Um, yeah, what do you think then? What are some warning signs to watch out for that may indicate that the conflict is becoming unhealthy or that someone is attempting to dominate or manipulate the situation? The first thing that came to mind when I read this question was the work by John Gottman, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is what he calls it, came from his love lab experiments. And he came up with these four, um, four particular behaviors that can indicate or yeah, indicate a high likelihood of divorce or breaking up of a, uh, of a couple. And, uh, but they represent four of the most unhealthy uh, ways people can uh, have conflict, in my opinion, uh, using contempt, using criticism, stonewalling, and defensiveness. Uh, so I don't know if you want me to elaborate about any of those. Um, I have more things yeah about. yeah if you can give a short um you know example of each of those and how, like in in a conflict that uh, you know someone uses contempt criticism and the other two so if you can give you know example uh, of them in in conflict and then uh, yeah move on or yeah sure criticism is criticism I mean, it's, it is what it is, right? It's a criticism of the person, something they've done, something about them. Contempt is more, it's deeper. It's about their character. It's about who they are. Uh, I, I won't even go into examples so we can move on, but uh, defensiveness, I think we know what defensiveness is. It's, it's one way to block um, hearing or receiving or it's a way to dismiss uh, someone when they're trying to bring a problem to you or trying to solve conflict. And then stonewalling is stonewalling is bad because literally it gives you nothing to work, nothing to hold on to, nothing to work with. It's somebody, some people call it shutting down. Some people, you know, call it different things, but what it means is uh, someone is not participating any longer in the conversation and they emotionally and sometimes physically go away. Looking at the seven, second part of the question, someone trying to control, manipulate the situation. I'm imagining your listeners have had this experience. Um, I know I certainly have. And, and I call it the quick shift of feelings. So I talked earlier about uh, taking turns, right? So the person introduces or names what they're upset about. Uh, one of the ways that manipulative people will work is they'll take the information and move it very quickly to their feelings, their feelings about what you're saying, their feelings about the way you've approached them, their feelings about something that's been triggered, but it's a very quick shift. And, uh, and it complicates the issue, right? So you're trying to manage both sets, like I said. So that can be a sign of someone who's very 
quick to manipulate and move um, move the conversation their way. Um, the second one I would use is I call increasing the problem. So you bring forth what's upset, what's upset you. And, uh, and I do this with my clients a lot. I teach them how to circle back when someone increases the problem. So here's why I'm upset with you. This is what happened. And this is how I feel about it. Someone who manipulates will start to reach from other areas and pull other things into the dialogue, right? And expand the problem. And then before you know it, you've lost your focus. You're not even talking about what you originally said. Um, manipulators are what I call disruptors of peace. You know, conflict actually can lead to greater intimacy with couples if it's handled the right way. So if you have someone who is approaching the conversation in a way that is non-confrontational, non-aggressive, but more relational and collaborative, let's say from a peaceful perspective, narcissists and people who use manipulation don't like that peace. They don't want that. Their arena is something that's combative, right? A winner, a loser. So they will find a way to disrupt that piece. And that can come in a variety of ways. Um, they're unable to receive feedback. So that's a warning sign that someone in a conflict or when you're trying to have a serious discussion cannot receive feedback. They react many, many <laughs> negative ways. Um, and then there's moving the goalposts. Okay, we have this problem, let's solve this problem and you work on it. And then the person moves the goalposts. The, it literally shifts all the time. It's like, well, that was good, but, right? So there's always this uh, target that's moving. Um, I'll, I'll talk more in a little bit about some of the... Uh, some of the manipulations that we are aware of with narcissistic people when we're talking about love bombing and things like that. But these are the ways that I characterize some of the manipulations when it comes to working on resolving conflict. Mm, yeah, that was a good, good list. Uh, thank you for explaining that. And, um, yeah, so then moving on, what do you think? As a survivor of narcissistic abuse, I want to cultivate a foundation of honesty in my relationships where each person is truthful and transparent with each other. How can I work on building honesty in my relationships? Uh, honesty and trust are linked, obviously. So... I say often, uh, trust is fragile. It's easy to break and very hard to get back. Um, so I think I think this has to be handled delicately. So when it comes to honesty in the relationship, well, the first thing that came to mind was you have to be consistent with telling the truth. Uh, both people do. This is an interesting topic because I've heard uh, many, many people debate what is the truth and what is not the truth, which seems like a silly thing to, to hear. But 
there's a whole category of like white lies, little lies. They don't hurt anybody. They're not really mm. telling, they're not really being dishonest, but uh, nonetheless, uh, they're not wholly honest. So I consider those lies. <laughs> so white lie, lie, they're the same thing. So because consistent with telling the truth and, and expect your partner to be consistent with telling the truth. Um, don't commit to things you cannot do. So building honesty comes from knowing yourself. And I, I say this and because a lot of people struggle with this concept of people pleasing is actually quite damaging to relationships. Uh, people pleasing is still a way to manipulate an outcome, right? You're trying to um, offer to people what you think that they want. So the outcome will, will be pleasing to you, whether it's they'll like you or they'll think highly of you or, um, so, so commit to the things you cannot do. Be honest about what you can do and what you can't do. Um, a couple needs to prioritize communication. Um, this is a, you know, a weekly check-in, a daily check-in, a date night. Uh, it doesn't even have to be that formal. If one of the most difficult situations is when someone is an avoidant person, right? So they would rather let things just go and, and, and kind of repair themselves. But the reality is in the long haul, that doesn't work well at all. Uh, in fact, it, uh, it leads to more divorce than couples who actually come in and have conflict and learn how to work through the conflict. So you have to prioritize the communication, be willing to be uncomfortable, um, be willing to be vulnerable. You want to address the breaches in the in the honesty. Um, and this is a personal journey for everyone. What is acceptable? What is not? Uh, what kind of lies? I mean, it's easy to say, we should never lie, right? But people, let's say, massage the truth in lots of different ways. This is important to know. Again, it's a compatibility issue. How do you both look at telling the truth? Uh, I will say in my own marriage, this was an issue um, in my second marriage because, and my husband warned me, he said, something about telling white lies. And I said, I don't know what a white lie is. And he said, well, no, I mean, some... in his mind, it made sense, right? Mm -hmm. He would leave out certain details. Well, let's just say that that required a lot of work on our part to, for him to learn the importance of being wholly honest. And a lot of his white lying was done out of people pleasing. Um, mm -hmm which he had always learned was a healthy thing to do, mm. you know, taking care of others. So, but it actually is, uh, it is something that prevents intimacy uh, with a couple. Is there any more that you, you're wanting from that around building honesty? Mm. 
Yeah, I think those were helpful um, because, well, yeah, there are certain things that we can do within ourselves to ensure that we are, you know, building honest in our relationships. But then, of course, there's this piece that at the end of the day, if the other person is not doing the similar work within themselves and kind of making sure that the relationship is transparent and uh, that where each person is truthful and transparent with each other, you know, you can't force it either, but those things that you just said, those are, uh, those were very helpful, but yeah, also kind of maybe understanding that, you know, at some point, like you also, you can't, you know, force someone because you can't really control them. If they, if they lie, they lie <laughs> in a way, or if they, if they just are, yeah, you know, that there's, there's also that, but yeah. I mean, people lie for lots of reasons. Um, I mean, lying is a fear response if they think they're going to get in trouble. But I looked at this through the lens of manipulation um, and and as at, as something that is destructive to a relationship or destructive to problem solving or conflict solving. Mm. So yeah, yeah, thank you. And then um well, these next questions uh, relates to, you know, uh, the theme of honesty. And what do you think? What are some warning signs to watch out for that may indicate that someone is not being honest or is attempting to manipulate the situation? One thing I would tell people <laughs> is uh, trust their gut. I mean, that's non-scientific, but, um, trust your gut. And I recommend people keep a journal, especially people who have come out of relationships with narcissists. Okay. There's usually been a, a tremendous amount of damage to their sense of self, their sense of reality. Okay. So I like the idea of journaling so that people can track with how they're feeling, can track, can track with experiences they're having and they have a record of it so if they ever question if they ever end up with someone else who makes them question the reality they have something to to reflect back on uh as far as warning signs um okay so i i realize i just said that my husband tells white or used to tell white lies he's he's recovered but um mm -hmm. when you're let's say in a new relationship let's talk about lies. Okay. Things that you might notice someone do. Do they exaggerate details? Do they leave details out like lies of omission or do they tell half truths? And that might be to you. That might be watching them talk to someone else and you hear them doing this. That's an indicator that um, someone is lying or has a comfort with lying and manipulation okay because they're moving the details of a situation to reflect whatever narrative it narrative it is they want right mm -hmm. so so if you see someone doing that i would look at that as a red flag gaslighting of course right it's a distortion of reality it creates self-doubt and confusion so mm -hmm. if someone uh starts to uh, gaslight you use that um, as a way to manipulate the relationship obviously it's a big uh, 
a big warning. Um, so I have down here the traditional or the often thought of tactics that narcissists use to manipulate love bombing, triangulation, projection, playing the victim, smear campaign, revenge seeking, guilt tripping, tripping, and hoovering. But as far as I'm looking at earlier in the relationship, so smear campaign, revenge seeking, those are, you know, after those are later on, but I would look for love bombing. I would look for triangulation, triangulation being you're having a conflict um, with your partner and they bring somebody else either in person or in theory um, or in hearsay to the conversation, you know, well, I, I was talking to your friend so-and-so and, you know, they think you're mentally ill too. Yeah. I didn't want to tell you, but they do. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's creating the train, right. Um, projection. Just remember what somebody is accusing you of is a reflection of how they're probably feeling about themselves. Okay. Right. You're a liar. You're, you, you never come home on at, at the time you say you will, you don't love me. You know, that has more to do with the feelings that they're having or the experiences they're having that they're projecting onto you. Um, Another manipulation tactic is, and very big for narcissists, is playing the victim. Yeah. Um, you have to be careful of, well, here's what I would say to that. I'll just share, I'll just share something I've heard innumerable times. And that is, I've had people meeting new people. And this happened to me multiple times when I, before I was remarried. And, and the man, the men I was dating or men I've heard in my office go quickly into uh, a sad traumatic story from their past, especially if they have a poor relationship with their mother. So they kind of lay the groundwork right away for I've been victimized, I've been traumatized. I blame my parents or my mother for a lot. Um, I actually think at the beginning of a relationship with a man, uh, finding out what kind of relationship he has with his mother is, is a priority because that can be a big indicator, uh, as far as how he might behave with women or what his attitude is toward women. Mm. Um, and the last one I had was guilt tripping. Um, that can start early in a relationship. It can go later in a relationship. It's just making somebody else feel responsible uh, for the manipulator's feelings, right? For doing something that hurt them, you know, not taking responsibility, placing blame on, on someone else. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That was really, really great. And uh, then what do you think... Um, as a survivor of narcissistic abuse, how can I learn to acknowledge and accept differences in others without feeling triggered or defensive? So this is a learning curve, I believe. When you've come out of a relationship uh, where you've suffered narcissistic abuse, 
recovery takes many different forms. Some people will wait quite a while to uh, date and others um, will not. So when I say it, it comes healing and recovery comes in different forms, it takes, it can take a long time. When we start to enter into dating again, sometimes we're not aware of our triggers until they actually, until we actually get triggered. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the best thing that you can do, um, prior to dating again, I would say is really work on the trauma of the abuse, the triggers that, that could happen. Right. Um, some of the more significant events that can cause, you know, not just an upset feeling, but really an acute triggering or flooding of emotions. Um, and if you are already out there and, and dating, um, hopefully working with someone that when you do become triggered, uh, you can process it with your therapist or do some trauma work around it. So the question with, without being triggered, um, I, I just say that's a process that's, that's going to take some time to get to the place where, uh, you have worked through your trauma enough that you're not triggered by certain behaviors. I think it's important to always make sure the person you're with is uh, aware of your history and and hopefully has a good working knowledge of what it looks like and what it is to have been in relationship with a narcissist, whether you come from a family where you were raised by one or you were married to one or you were in a long-term relationship with one. Um, and if they're not, and if this is a relationship that the couple wants you know, to be in for a long time, that it's incumbent on them to really get knowledgeable on it. Uh, it's so misunderstood. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's lovely when I meet people who have no idea what a narcissist looks like or the, the, the outcomes of being raised by one or being in a relationship with one, because I think it's lovely because they obviously haven't had that terrible experience, mm -hmm. but for those who have, uh, it will be important to be able to talk about it and know that they are supported and, you know, as best be, they are understood. So make sure your partner is aware. Um, and you know what, remind yourself of who you are now. Okay. When we are triggered, we are in our trauma, right? That's what's coming up. So when you're in your trauma, learning to have ways to management, manage it, uh, self-soothe, all those things, right? But you're in your trauma and the person you are with now, even though you're being triggered by something that's happening with them, they are not the person you had been with before, right? And that gets blurry. Something happens and it feels so familiar. And before we know it, 
we're having the reaction we used to have in the toxic relationship. And you will discover whether or not this behavior that has triggered you is something to be concerned about. Um, but it is important to recognize that the triggering does not mean that everything is the same, okay? It means it's something more for you to look at and something to pay attention to in the relationship. Mm, yeah, thank you. Do you, so is it possible to not be triggered at like, like at all at some point? Or is it that just you become so good at managing the trigger, but it still it kind of still is there always? I'll be honest with you. I absolutely think it's possible to not be triggered. What makes it difficult is the length of time it can take and the work you have to do to heal that trauma. Okay, it depends on what the trauma what the trigger is coming from, what kind kind of trauma, you know, was it trauma that came from childhood that you sustained over many, many years? Mm. Was it trauma of a short-term relationship? Uh, what we know is the longer the trauma, uh, the longer it takes to recover from it. But absolutely, it's just, you have to work with someone who, knows how to work with trauma specifically if they can if they know how to work with narcissistic trauma and then it can often require creative types type of therapies different types of trauma therapy emdr um i myself did uh, uh, psychodrama which was tremendously healing for me tremendously so yes absolutely you just have to be patient okay well, great. And uh, I'm then looking at this question and I'm wondering why would like, why would differences trigger or make someone defensive? Like, is there something in narcissistic abuse generally that, you know, like I'm, I'm thinking like differences, why, why would that be like triggering or defensive? Is it that we feel more safe when we are like, or like, quote unquote safe like it it's this false feeling of safety if we are like oh we are you know similar with each other we are the so same. same and and is it just or is it just because differences they they might create conflict and that's why you get more easily triggered or defensive or yeah what are your thoughts so for some reason i keep using myself in this <laughs> in this particular <laughs> podcast but this this brings this up mm -hmm. early on after I was uh, divorced from the person that was narcissistic. Um, and I started to date again. Um, and the person I was dating had said they were upset with me and I stopped and I said, okay. And I didn't say a word and they started to tell me why they were upset and I said, go ahead. And I kept saying, go ahead. And he said to me, go ahead with what? I said, you can start yelling at me. I mean, it was so conditioned in me to expect to be yelled at. He said, I don't yell when I'm upset. 
I'm not <laughs> going to yell at you. I'm upset because, you know, something that happened small, right? So, so the whole idea of um, being triggered or defensive when there's differences, this was outside the norm of what I had experienced. And I had been married over 20 years and I didn't trust this person. I, the person I had been married to handled conflict much like my parents had handled conflict, right? So I married somebody like this. So I had a childhood of it, then I had a long-term marriage of it. So differences can just be scary, right? We know what we're used to. We anticipate what we're used to, or, you know, it's, it's a matter of, of, of trust. I mean, it wasn't safe to have differences in these relationships, right? Differences typically led to conflict and, and not a healthy resolution. So the defensiveness could just be preemptive, you know, waiting for, waiting for, you know, the ball to drop and, and the conflict to start and become ugly. And so somebody quickly goes into defensiveness Mm. and, or they were with somebody or raised by somebody that was hypercritical, right. And and hyper accusatory, which narcissists can be right. And they learn to defend even when they didn't need to defend. I hope Mm. that answers your question. Yeah. 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 Now it clarifies like the mere concept of differences and different, it can be triggering because, because in the past it has created so much conflict and like, um, and those conflicts are often become very unhealthy and abusive and that is traumatizing and that can be then be triggering. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And then what do you think, what are some effective strategies for cult- cultivating empathy and open-minded, open-mindedness and navigating disagreements or, or conflicts in a healthy and respectful way? So I'm assuming we're talking about as an individual, how do we cultivate yes. empathy and open-mindedness? Okay. Yes. And navigating conflict. Okay. Um, so... I talk about emotional empathy and intellectual empathy. So intellectual empathy is really role. It's it's emulating people who have shown empathy. So an intellectual empathizer would be, oh, that person fell down. Um, I've been taught that if somebody falls down that, you know, I should get up and help them or that probably hurts, but they're not feeling it. They're not they're not climbing into their experience. So emotional empathizers are the ones that have the capability and hopefully have been raised in homes where they're taught to genuinely care and have concern for others' feelings, okay? So when you're looking at cultivating empathy and open-mindedness, you wanna work on having genuine interest in other people's thoughts and feelings, genuine interest. Okay, not a rehearsal, um, which is what you find more with narcissists. It's um, it's feigned empathy. Um, sharing and being heard and listening to what other people are sharing, right? And I mean, engaged in listening, being curious, 
asking more questions. Um, if this is not something that you want to do with a particular person, this is where it's better to be honest, to say, you know, this subject doesn't interest me. I'm not going to be a very good listener, something to that effect. Um, because open-mindedness comes from learning about different things, different people, different cultures, right? And considering what that must, must might be like, even though it's very different from us. It's, that's one way to look at open-mindedness. Um, you wanna be aware of your own blind spots or your own biases. Um, and sometimes that comes in the form of feedback and being able to take feedback. Uh, but empathy is going to be difficult if we are unaware of the judgment we may hold about a certain something, behavior or a person or culture, you know, something like that. So you have to be aware of that and challenge it. Be willing to be challenged by others about it and engage in dialogue about it which is often not something that you will find with narcissists. They, um, they look good on the surface, but when you go beneath the surface, the content, the, there's not a lot of meat on the bones. So they know just enough to sound like they know something, but they won't engage usually in very um, interesting uh, dialogues about maybe opposing positions because often they don't know very much about it. They just know enough to sound like they do. And again, um, be aware of your triggers because uh, if you're triggered, it's going to be hard to connect with your empathy and it's going to be hard to connect with your open-mindedness. It will, if you're triggered, it feels personal and, and then it's hard to climb into the other person's experience. So it's, I'm being triggered, right? What's coming up for me? What are the skills I have to manage this? Can I get back? Can I manage this and get back to trying to learn more about the person I'm talking to and learn more about their experience? Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was, that was a really good point. And yeah, especially because when we are triggered, our defenses go up and when our defenses are up, we, like you said, we're not very open-minded and we're just kind of so uh, focused on protecting ourselves and, you know, just, exactly. <laughs> then it's, it's really, really hard to really, really uh, remain open-minded and be empathic. But hey, yeah, today I think we had some great questions and great, great answers. So I want to thank everyone for listening and thank you, Elizabeth Miller, so much to uh, for coming here and answering all these questions. I think your your answers were very helpful and practical and insightful. So I really appreciate you for sharing your knowledge and experience. And yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.